Broadcasting live to the world. Now, it's Sheila Zielinski. Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, end-time watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sheila Zielinski Show for this October 28, 2015 edition I broadcast Monday to Friday. That's weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and on Saturday evening at 11 p.m. Eastern on WINB and WWCR. And there is a call-in number for that Saturday night show as well. Again, it's on the Radio Archives tab at weekendvigilante.com. If you have not signed up for my podcast, do so by going to the website and clicking on that Follow Sheila on Podomatic button. And also do see in the top right-hand corner on my website, do add me on all those social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and the direct links again are at the top of the website. Do not forget to pick up a copy of Green Gospel, my book. We have a lot of new listeners tuning in. So listeners, If you do not have a copy of my book, Green Gospel, the New World Religion subtitle, do get a copy of it. This is the greatest fraud of our era. And as Dr. Timothy Ball says, Sheila Zielinski's book effectively demolishes most of what you think you know. So there you have it. And lastly, do get out to the Augusto Prez event. Do Not Miss It is in Live Oak, Florida, November 13th, 14th, 15th. It's entitled Light in the Darkness, a Foreshadowing of His Glory. I think this event is really going to live up to that title. So do make plans to be in Florida, and I'm going to be there as well. So I look forward to seeing you all in Live Oak, Florida next month. My guests are Walid and Theodore Shobat. Walid was a radicalized Muslim willing to die for the cause of jihad until he found Jesus Christ in 1994. And as a member of the PLO, he was involved in terror activity. He was imprisoned in Jerusalem for planting a bomb in Bethlehem. And while in America, he was recruited by the Islamic Association of Palestine, a forerunner to today's Hamas. Today, him and his son, they provide real support to imprisoned and persecuted Christians around the globe. Walid has been featured on Sid Roth's Supernatural, the BBC, Israel National News, the Glenn Beck Show, the Jerusalem Post, World Net Daily, CNN. He speaks all over the world. I could go on and on. But without further ado, it is my pleasure to have on this show Walid and his son Theodore Shobat. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, the Middle East, fellas, it's a flame with chaos. The rapid march of the Islamic State from Syria into Iraq has rattled Washington and Europe. The Palestinian-Israel conflict's heating up. And then we have 
the world powers continue to wrangling Iran nuke deals gone bad. I mean, the rumblings in the Middle East are getting louder and louder. The Associated Press yesterday said there's an escalation of U.S. military action in the Middle East. Defense Secretary Ash Carter is actually saying we're going to go in boots on the ground. So what? Now we're going to Iraq and Syria and we are going to conduct what? Hand-to-hand combat with ISIS? Or is this a unilateral ground raid if need be? Waleed, let's start with you. Are you buying this narrative coming out of Washington or is this more obfuscation? I'm not buying this narrative at all. In Syria, you have Putin getting involved in Syria. You have Iran next door, and it's got about 40,000 militias there. And so, as it seems, with the whole, we got to look at the whole in Kabul, which is Syria and Iraq. And you have superpowers that are dealing with the issue. You have Russia involved, too. Russia is an ally of Iran currently. And if this is going to happen, it's going to happen as we had in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, sure, the West and Saudi Arabia aided the jihadists in Afghanistan. You could have that kind of scenario in which Russia and the U.S. are not about to give up the Middle East one for the other. The U.S. is not going to give up what they have been trying to accomplish in ousting all the regimes And Russia is not going to give up these regimes that's always been an ally of Russia. So Russia cannot afford losing the Tortus waterway in the Mediterranean and its passageway in in the whole Middle East and the world into Europe. When when we think of the Middle East, we got to think of the two great powers, and that is Russia and the U.S., not just Bashar al-Assad versus the Free Syrian Army or the rebels in this case. The rebels and Bashar al-Assad is really the excuse for the United States and NATO to begin to dismantle the Middle East, as we've seen happening, which is a disaster. But is the U.S. ready? I don't think the American public is ready for any boots on the ground. It's impossible. You mentioned Putin there. Were you surprised that Putin openly declared that Obama armed ISIS? Were you surprised at that? Not at all. But, you know, because what he's saying is that you have several groups, that one of them that the U.S. armed, and eventually the uh, al-Nusra and Ahrar al-Sham, basically, two groups that began to confiscate weapons from the very weak military that Obama started. And so he's saying... By what you're doing is you're arming ISIS. It's exactly what you're arming the bad guys. And it's exactly what it is. There are no good guys fighting Bashar al-Assad. If there are any, probably somebody could name them. And I could show that they're really terroristic. What you got in Syria is really two groups. You got ISIS that says we want to caliphate now. And then you have all the others, Ahrar al-Sham, al-Nusra, and Jaish al-Fatih, those three major groups there, that says the following. They say we want to basically first oust Bashar al-Assad, then we will establish an Islamic caliphate. So what's the difference between those and ISIS? It's just the timing. That's all it is. ISIS wants it now, and the others want it later, first ousting Bashar, because the others will get, you know, would gain weapons from the U.S. and from NATO. Of course, ISIS is viewed as the boogeyman because it displays beheadings, while the others do the same thing. You can find 
the same videos by Nusra and the others killing people. Right. Yeah, so what I like what Trump sees it and the way Putin sees it, and they see it as they're all Islamist terrorists. And so we got to understand what's going on here. What is going on here is that you got the U.S. as a superpower, which wants to remove what was called the Ba'ath. The Middle East was always Ba'athist. Ba'ath means Arab nationalism. And so you have Bashar al-Assad. He's the old school Arab nationalist. You have Assisi now, who took over Muhammad Mursi, who's an Islamist. And he is the old school Arab nationalism. Saddam Hussein was an Arab nationalist. And so the Arab nationalists were always allied to Russia. And the only way for the NATO and the U.S. to defeat the Arab nationalists, to basically establish a hegemony in the region that they think will be pro-West, is the Islamists, which is crazy. And this lunatic idea started in the Arab Spring as we began to see the Arab Spring turning into Islamist movement. Until today, this policy continues and because we always have to look at the big picture, Russia versus the U.S. Once we see this is the big picture, then we understand. Why would America be interested in arming Islamists? Well, they're not interested in arming Islamists. They're interested in more of the power play and spreading the U.S. hegemony in that region over Russia. That's all it is. Well, you mentioned Trump there. I mean, it's actually quite interesting that he said on the Michael Savage show the other day, it's almost like we are protecting these people. He said, you know, you as president talking about Barack Hussein Obama would knock the hell out of the training camps, the ones a given. And he said, it's incredible. We don't do it since we know who these people are. I mean, if Donald Trump is going to revoke U.S. passports from terrorist Muslims, he would probably have to shut down quite a few mosques in America. Weigh in on that, Theo. Yes, it's a good question. For one, I've done a lot of study on Trump and a lot of observation on Trump. And I think that out of all of the candidates who are running for the Republican primary, he's the one who's going to win. I think that's very obvious. Um, for one, Donald Trump, he says things that no one else really wants to say. And, he, and I, I observe American society by looking at the Internet and, and how people respond to certain things on the Internet. And so by looking at the Internet, you can really get a good assessment as to the nature and as to the state, emotional state and also the political state of, of the country, especially the, the conservative people, or maybe the people who lean more right. And from what I see, they're going to go for a guy like Donald Trump, because Donald Trump will, will come out and say, absolutely, I would shut down the mosques. Donald Trump would come out and say, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy ISIS so badly. Oh, you know, I'm, he just says, I'm, I'm going to get him. You know, I'm going to get him so good. <laughs> And that's really what people want to hear. People don't want to hear statistics. I remember when Romney was running, and this is one thing that I, this is one observation that I made, and I predicted that Romney was not going to win. I said Obama is going to win, and people were saying, "Oh no, the polls all say that Romney's going to win." You know what? I don't rely on polls. I rely on crowds. And when you look at the crowds that Obama was getting when he was running against McCain. Or when he was running against Romney, he was getting pretty big crowds. And if you look at the crowds that Trump is accumulating, they're huge. They're tens of thousands. He, and he's not speaking at diners like Chris Christie. He's speaking at stadiums. The way I look at it is this. This is a very simple strategy that you should use when trying to assess who, is, who has the better chance of winning <laughs> the presidency. Who is being treated as though they're already the president? 
you know, who is being treated as though they are already the president. If you are being treated as though you are already the president before you even become the president, then most likely you're going to become the president. When Trump makes a speech, boom, there's the news. When Trump makes a statement, anything, he says something about Ben Carson's religion. He didn't even really say anything specific about the religion. He just said, ah, you know, Seventh-day Adventist. I, I really don't know what that's about. <laughs> and everybody was talking about it. Why? Because it's all eyes on him. The celebrity factor is something that you cannot ignore. And you have all these other candidates. They're spending millions of dollars to make ads against Donald Trump. What I told people on Shubat.com is this. The millions of dollars that they're going to spend on these ads is nothing in comparison to all the hours that people have spent watching The Apprentice. It's kind of like me and Michael Savage. Like I, I listen to Michael Savage all the time, and I used to listen to him every single day. And he became a part of the house. And so you really like him. You, you know, he, he, he becomes a personality that is really infused in your mind. So you can't really ignore all of these factors. And people are sitting there, you know, laughing Trump out, saying, oh, he's not going to make it. Those people don't know what they're talking about. How did Arnold Schwarzenegger become the governor of California? He played the Terminator. And who doesn't want the Terminator as their governor? It's really that simple. So you have to look at it in a very simple way of thinking. The average person thinks very simply. They don't think complex. And a lot of these candidates, they think that they can appeal to people by showing how complex they are. Now, that, that may work at a university, but it doesn't work in politics. And the problem with Romney is that he was too complex. He was always bringing up statistics and this statistics and the GDP and the Ella, all these acronyms he was bringing up. But with a guy like Donald Trump who just gets up there and says, yeah, I'm going to shut the mosques down. I'm going to freaking kill those guys. I'm going to throw the illegals out. I'm going to put a big fat wall. That appeals to people. That's the reality. So if you ask me, Ted, who do you think is going to win? I think it's Donald Trump. I think you're going to see Donald Trump as the president. I mean, if anything, he's going to be the nominee for the Republican. That's, there's no doubt. Because you look at people like Carly Fiorina, you know, Bush Sr., those people have no appeal. Look at, look at, for example, Lindsey Graham. The guy has no appeal. A lot of the people who keep track as, as to his actions don't like him primarily because he wanted to help the Syrian terrorists. That's a fact. Back in 2011, him and John McCain were working to send rocket launchers and anti-aircraft weaponry and bulletproof vests to the, to the terrorists. Right. He has no personality. Same thing with Carly Fiorina. They have no, none of these people have personality. They have no personality whatsoever. Donald Trump is the only one who has personality. Maybe Ben Carson is the only one who's, who has a good personality after Trump, I would say. Well, Donald Trump certainly does speak his mind. He's certainly speaking out against Muslim terrorists. Now, speaking of which, we've got a really interesting story here coming out yesterday on the BBC saying that Islamic State militants have killed three captives in the ancient city of Palmyra, which is interesting because they tied them to these columns. They blew them up. Of course, you've got ISIS posting images of members driving a tank over a soldier. You yeah, got I a saw that. You got a destruction of a 2,000-year-old ancient temple of Bel. And, you know, they're kind of known. These, these militants are known for yeah. beheading and drowning and setting fire to prisoners. But meanwhile, you know, you've got a migrant crisis. You've got people fleeing under Islamic State in Syria. You've got at least 120,000 people being displaced in Syria this month alone. And yesterday on Breitbart, it showed German citizens panicking as Muslims marched through the city. Even the German secret 
Service warning of dire consequences of Berlin's open door policy. I mean, Europe here is in a complete meltdown. You've got Kurdish forces across the border in northern Syria. I mean, what is your take on everything that's happening? Walid, jump in there, and then Theo, you go next. Well, you have a gushing forth. we got to look at this immigration that is coming into Europe. It's not Syrian, really. It's minority Syrian. Majority comes from different countries. And they're being spewed out of Turkey now. Uh, but in Revelation 12, it talks about the dragon, the red dragon, yes. gushing forth this uh, torrent of flood against the woman. Well, in this case, the woman could easily be the church and the followers of Jesus Christ. So in other words, the Islamdom of the world wants to really gush forth, because we look at the Bible, the narrative is waters, is multitudes, nations, and different tongues. That is part of this kingdom of this evil that is gushing forth after the church. In other words, what is historically known as Christendom. And that's exactly what we see. And it stems from Turkey. Turkey has a red flag. It's got the crescent moon. It looks like a dragon with horns. And, and so you have the same depiction in, by John, the woman standing on the, on the crescent. In the end, it will be basically swallowed by the earth. So, you know, we got to look into these depictions in Scripture and see that this is what we see happening. And I've argued for many, many years that Turkey is the center, is going to be the center of this anti-Christ, anti-Christian system that is going to torment and persecute the Christians. And so we see it happening, and we see Muslims from all over Timbuktu, not just basically Syria, are going to Turkey, from Turkey, migrating all over, not just in Germany, but other other countries too. And so as we see this kind of thing happening, and we see that Merkel of Germany going to where? Turkey. Why is she going to Erdogan of Turkey, offering $3 billion to stop this flow of immigration? And then he's insisting that Germany must oust Bashar al-Assad for this dragon to stop this gushing forth of all these immigrants, and and Europe is in disarray. I mean, you got Switzerland uh, not joining the European Union and saying, and and they're having more uh, conservative parties winning in Switzerland. Uh, Similar things are going on in Germany, Sweden. Merkel is losing her popularity in Germany. In other words, it's becoming to become a wake-up call for Europe. Many people thought that Europe was hopeless, I never thought Europe was hopeless. Europe will eventually regain its momentum because of the persecution by the Muslims against Europeans. And that's what we see what these immigrants are doing. You have a whole terror hub moving into Europe, which is going to wake up the Europeans fairly quickly here. This is very prophetically significant when you look at Arabia, Turkey, the Persian culture. I mean, it's all very prophetically tied to the Bible throughout Revelation 13, which, of course, mentions the greatest combined threat, the beast to Christianity, what is kind of a mishmash of the lion, the bear, course, the Asian minor Turkish leopard, too. So this is very prophetically significant, isn't it? Absolutely, because we have to look at what John is saying. The body of a leopard, that's Greece. The feet of a bear, that's Iran, Persia. Mouth of a lion, that's Babylon. Well, we think of Babylon, which is not Iraq, 
because every reference in the Bible that says Babylon, it mentions the vicinities in this Babylon of the prophetic part of the Bible, and it never links them with ancient cities or vicinities within ancient Babylon. There's no mention of Babel, Sumer, Aqad, Arach, Kalna, all the different ancient Iraqi cities that were part of Babylon, but it mentions Qidar, Dumma, Didan, which is the heart of Arabia. It has, you notice, the mouth of a lion. In other words, this teaching, this philosophy behind it comes from Arabia. And so John is very meticulous here. And when we look at Isaiah 21, it's pretty clear that Iran is going to finally destroy Arabia because the harlot herself is destroyed by the beast. And the beast comes out of where? It comes out of the Mediterranean Sea, the Great Sea, as Daniel foretold. And so, you know, we, once we hone in on all these things and we hone in on, let's say, Zechariah chapter 9, uh, verse 13 and 14, you look at it and it says very clearly that this is going to be a problem coming from the north. Christ will be seen over Israel at that time and will go with the whirlwinds of the south. Where is he going? North. To invade who? Invade what it says. Greece, Yavan, Ionia. Ionia is in Turkey. In, so when we say Greece, we always think that, you know, Cyprus or Athens, and that's not the biblical Greece. Biblical Greece is always Asia Minor. That's where the seven churches were. That's where was the, the devil basically put his headquarters in which Christ himself, he says, Pergamum, thou art the seat of Satan. That's the seat of the Antichrist. Christ said that. So most people don't focus on these tidbits in the Bible. They always focus on Ezekiel 38, Psalm 83, or this verse, or, or the destruction of Damascus in Isaiah 17. When you look at the context of the destruction of Damascus, it's pretty clear Christ is on earth. This is not something that happens just separate event. It's part of the battles of Armageddon. And so when we look at this narrative and we look at John, the gushing forth of the immigrants, we're beginning to see the, you know, the beginning spark, if you will, that basically is going to be the manifestation of Antichrist, the infestation by the Antichrist system into Europe. So, you know, this picture and what we see has been giving us what we see in TV, you know. In other words, in the past, people had these different concepts about Antichrist, you know, and it never matched what you saw in the television with what we've been saying for two decades now, people didn't believe us. We said, no, 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 it's Turkey. Oh, no, no, they said it was Europe. I said, well, how could you have Europe being the Antichrist when the Antichrist, according to Daniel, you know, he is destroyed by a threat from the north, you know, and it will come to his end. North of Europe is an ocean. How is that going to work out? Well, north of Turkey is Russia. Ah, we see Russia already in Syria. We see already Erdogan upset at Russia. He's working with the Saudis, the Qataris. The Qataris and Saudi Arabia are very, very nervous about Russia being involved in Syria. America is nervous about Russia's involvement in Syria. Russia, it seems to me, to be the defeater of Turkey. Turkey's interest was to invade Syria was to really support ISIS in Syria. I mean, who supports ISIS? It's obviously Turkey. Everybody knows that. Who's been the main funder for ISIS? Turkey. Who's been the main supplier of everything? You know. So we're beginning to see the drawing or the chess puzzle taking 
each piece into its position where God and the devil will play chess and you know at the end who will be the winner. Well, when it comes to Mystery Babylon, the common tendency amongst many of the theologians is to just write it off to being Rome. And I've always thought Arabia and not Rome would be the harlot since, if you look at Revelation 17.3, the harlot comes from the desert islands that sits on many waters. I mean, when we look at what John saw there in the island of Patmos, the Antichrist is said to rule from Pergamum, Turkey, which Christ proclaimed would be the future seat of Satan. So I think people have to tie this all in because, again, it always goes back to Rome, doesn't it? Yeah, because what happens, see, most people, when they have the wrong concept of prophecy, they really what they do is isolate scripture. They take one verse, two verses, see, this looks like that, and that's why it's wrong. But they don't include the rest of scripture. Just take, let's say, for example, in Revelation 18. I wrote an article today on it. Mystery Babylon. What does it say in Revelation 18? The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of what? Gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, cloth. You know, it goes on and on. Spice, incense, frankincense, wine, liquor. Sounds like Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yes, Saudi Arabia, remarkably, has imports of liquor. The country that basically prohibits. And the souls of men and slaves. Ivory. Uh, does the Rome import ivory? It's illegal. Uh, U.S. doesn't import ivory. That can't be New York City either. There's only one place that can import ivory, and that's Saudi Arabia. So you look at everything from the drug epidemic in Saudi Arabia to the liquor to what they're importing matches exactly. And then especially when it says that these merchants, that this place, this harlot, cannot buy their merchandise. They began to say that Rome is the one because it exports these things. But that's not what it says. It says that no one buys their merchandise anymore. The merchants' merchandise on that sea. Where is the sea? Well, very clearly in Jeremiah chapter 49, 21. And it's pretty clear, you know, the earth is moved at the noise of the fall. The cry, the noise thereof was heard at the Red Sea. Now, that's a geographic location. You know, there's no way around it. What are you going to do with the Red Sea in Jeremiah 49, 21, referring to Babylon? Right. This eliminates everything that's out there when it comes to prophecy that says it's not Arabia. Because Mecca and Medina are, are right on the Red Sea, okay? And it lives in luxury. In fact, it lives in secret sin. In other words, this harlot says, I, I, I continue forever, the eternal queen. I am, uh, and there is none beside me. I will never be a widow or suffer a loss of children. Its destruction will overtake you in a moment, God says. In other words, it lives in sin and it wants to cover its sin. The U.S. doesn't cover its sins that much. It's open. Everything is in the open in the U.S. And then it's destroyed in one day. You know, and that's definitely a nuclear war when Isaiah 21 gives us very clearly the reference. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now, that reference is exactly the reference in Revelation. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The burden against Arabia in Isaiah 21 regarding this Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And it says the burden against Arabia. Duma, Ar yeah. And, and Duma, and Qidar, and Didan, and Arise, or Elam. Elam is Persia. So Persia is going to get a nuke. In fact, I've been saying this for two decades. And every single prophecy analyst out there, 
was wrong. I challenged them. I said, no, Iran will get its nukes. And everybody thought I was crazy. Israel will attack Iran. They will never allow it to happen. It's not going to happen. I said, it's going to happen because how else are they going to nuke Saudi Arabia? Because God says, I will sweep it with the broom of destruction. Have you seen a nuclear explosion and every building is swept on from the epicenter of the explosion on all sides like a broom everything's swept away and so we know it's a nuclear attack and we know that iran is going to get its nuke because we know from isaiah 21 that it's going to destroy arabia we know from john the beast will destroy the harlot hello so it's pretty clear the harlot will be destroyed by the muslim world themselves well, this use, mother of harlots, it's also usually synonymous with the Vatican's worship of Ishtar. But what people fail to look at eschatology-wise, you know, history records actually show that that originated, that whole worship of Ishtar, the queen of harlots, it didn't originate in Rome. That was Arabia. So it's interesting that when it comes to that, it actually is a really perfect match with the Arabian world, isn't it? Well, yeah. And let me just uh, add something to what you just said. Um, You're right in that Ishtar really did come from Saudi Arabia. Uh, I don't know where you learned that from, but it's uh, it's true. Uh, When you look at some of the numerous archaeological books that have been written on Ishtar, what they find out is that the template, I should say, of Ishtar, or the original form of Ishtar, is actually the worship of the southern Arabian deity Aftar, which originally came from Yemen. And what they have concluded is that at one point in history, you had these Akkadian people who migrated from Saudi Arabia, from Yemen specifically, and they went to Iraq, and they brought the worship of Aftar, with them. And so that worship of Aftar evolved or began to have different variations. And one of those variations was Ishtar. But there's many different variations. There's Aftar, and then there is Ashtar. But then if you go to um, different parts, uh, like in Syria, it's Artagersis. If you go into uh, Egypt, it would be Anath. If you go into Cyprus, it would be the goddess Aphrodite in Greece as well. And the Greeks would, the ancient Greek writers would tell you that the worship of Aphrodite originally came from the Middle East, specifically from Lebanon. It migrated itself. So, yes, but would I go so far as to say that Ishtar worship has a variant lying within Rome? I don't think so. There's no evidence to even support that. Many people have made that claim, but there's no evidence for it. Um, There's no evidence ever of. Ishtar worship exported into Italy, into Rome. Now, the Romans did worship Aphrodite, which originally came from the Middle East, but but that was pagan Romans. Those weren't Roman Catholics. Uh, Many people will say that Constantine founded the Catholic Church. There's no evidence for that either. But Constantine, when he became the emperor, one of the things that he did was he began to destroy. He destroyed, for example, a temple in the Phoenician city of Athaca which was dedicated to this very deity. And they would do homosexual orgies in this temple. And Constantine was so disgusted by this that he destroyed the entire temple. And then he outlawed the rituals that they were doing in the temple. In fact, when you look at the historical record as to the Catholic Church's involvement in paganism, what you find out is that it really uprooted paganism as opposed to adopting it. There's later examples of that. For example, when the um, Spaniards invaded Mexico, they didn't adopt any of the goddess worship that was there or the, the 
satanic or pagan rituals that were being observed in Mexico, they destroyed it. If I may add, you know, this concept comes from the two Babylons. Uh, yeah, Alexander Hislop. Alexander Hislop. Now, if you look up the two Babylons, Alexander Hislop, you'll never find any serious historian that would support the work of Hislop. In fact, even Ralph Woodrow, Ralph Woodrow carried the works of Hislop. He authored a book paralleling the two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. And it's an excellent case in point to what I'm saying, because Woodrow finally debunked his own book. But when he had his book supporting the two Babylons, everybody was inviting him and he was all over the place. But when he started investigating his own work and the work of Hislop, he reneged. He says, this is wrong. In fact, you just look up Woodrow, Ralph Woodrow, and you can see his writings. He's vehemently saying this is wrong, because what happened with Hislop is he began to create myths out of things that weren't there, like the Namrud and Samiramis. You know, yeah. you heard this before, that, you know, there was a story about Nimrod begot Tammuz after having sex with his mother, Samiramis. Well, historically speaking, there's no connect between Samiramis and Nimrod. They lived in totally different eras of history. No historian, you never can find a historian that would support this nonsense. But this is the nonsense that crept later on into the prophecy books that you buy from the shelf. And let's be honest, you know, you take a look at these prophecy books. Give me one that, that you would consider came true. You know, you've read books that Babylon was being rebuilt by Saddam Hussein. And what happened? Saddam Hussein is in the gallows. Babylon was not rebuilt. And so all these books end up in the garbage bin of history. The same thing about the European Union being the Antichrist. You know, we don't have any figure in Europe rising as the Antichrist. We don't have... You know, Rome doesn't match the harlot of Babylon. None of these things really work. It simply divides Christians against Christians because here we have apostolic succession Christians all over the world, and we have evangelical Christians predominantly in America. And one side looks at the other side and says, you're the harlot of Babylon, you're this and you're that, and we need to unite to fight the real enemy. And we have much enemies. We have abortion. We have homosexual agenda. We have all kinds of things. And, and if I could just add something to what my father was saying, uh, Alexander Hislop was a bishop in the Church of Scotland, and he wrote this book called The Two Babylons. And the whole premise of the book is that Nimrod had a wife named Samiramis, and that the two of them together formed a religion that would eventually somehow uh, appear in Rome, where it would eventually become the Catholic Church. But for one, the whole theory is destroyed by one simple historical fact, and that is that Samiramis, if you actually want to believe that she existed, and this possibility that she did exist, I'm not saying that she didn't, but if you actually study who she really was, she probably lived around 100 years before Nebuchadnezzar, who's in, who's in the Bible, in the book of Daniel. So that's pretty early in comparison to the Tower of Babel. So there's no way that she even lived in the time of Nimrod. So that right there would destroy the entire theory of Alexander Hislop. Hislop says basically that the Trinity came from a pagan idea. I mean, both Protestants, Catholics, Copts, you know, all kinds of Christians would never agree that the Trinity came from a pagan origin. So why would people who believe in the Trinity buy into the Hislop concept? Yeah, well, Hislop was definitely known for his criticism of the Catholic Church. According to Hislop, Nimrod took Samiramis as his queen, although the history on Samiramis is sketchy at best, but he postulates that she defiled herself under the goddess 
Ishtar and had a son named Gilgamesh. But if you look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, it lists Gilgamesh's parents as Lugal Banda and Ninsun. So unless these names are yet another translation of Nimrod and Semiramis, I don't see that that theory is true. But what I find interesting about Hislop's theory is that he claims that all religious tales, they're just retellings of the virgin mother and goddess, Samiramis, the Gilgamesh slash Tama's immaculate conception, so to speak. And he makes all faiths linked to this. And this is what David Icke uses to describe the hijacking of religious worship in churches. He says all churches are unknowingly worshiping Semiramis and Tammuz. So, and here's another thing. Theo, you would know this, that 4,000-year-old archaeological find in central Turkey, they actually found tablets that had been laying there for how long? And that really showed symbolisms of Ishtar, didn't it? I mean, so how did that get in Turkey? Well, that was in Turkey, most definitely. I mean, Athar worship went all over the Mediterranean. That's a fact. I mean, it went all over Turkey. In fact, um, I actually did a whole study on this once. I don't know if I ever published it on the internet, though, but... If you uh, if you read about the religion, the religion that the Maccabees were fighting, right? Uh, many people will say, well, it was the Greek religion. That's not entirely accurate. It was actually the Syrian religion that they were fighting. The religion that they were fighting was that which was found in ancient Turkey at that time in Asia Minor. So you had the worship of this Aphrodite goddess. And the name of the priests, for example... Using the Arabic word Abdullah, which is slave of Allah, the priest would be called the yeah, slave of this deity, of his goddess. The, the religion of ancient Turkey was a very Middle Eastern religion. I mean, the Assyrians, part of their empire was a section of what we call Turkey today. The Hittites lived in Turkey, and the Hittite religion was very much influenced by Arabian religion. So... And the, the Italians had it too. Listen, the Italians had the worship of Molech. And Molech was a Canaanite deity. And we know for a fact that the, that the Italians would get their sacrificial victims and throw them into the Tiber River as a sacrifice for Molech. Same with the Hittites and the Ammonites. And if well, you look at Mesopotamians' accounts of the Great Flood, they're talking about when Satan rebelled against God. It was as far as deities go, you see that some deity named Allah actually revolts against yeah. this, you know, Sumerian. Deal, yeah, yeah, yeah. Allah worship. Yeah, that was, I was actually the first one to, to write about that. And that was found in the Epic of Atrahasis, which is an epic that is, they say, around 1700 years before Christ. And so um, in this epic, it says that the gods originally were laboring for Enlil and that Allah started a revolt against Enlil and saying, why, are we, why do we have to do all this labor? And so he caused this rebellion. He led the rebellion. Look, we have to understand that what is a beast? I mean, a beast is a threat to the body of God's people. That's what it is. A beast is a threat. So who was the greatest threat to Christianity? It was definitely Islam. Islam killed more Christians than any other system in the world. Well, some group will say, well, wait a minute. The Catholic Church killed more people than any other group in the world. They killed more Christians. This is a great question that people don't even ponder. The Catholic Church fought against what is called the Cathars. They are heretics. They're not really Bible-believing Christians. The Cathars, the Albigensians, these are not Christians. 
remember, it's very crucial to understand that the woman, this harlot religion, drinks the cup of the blood of the saints. So to make the argument that Rome is the harlot, that the Catholic Church have killed Christians, millions of Christians. In fact, I've investigated this very, very thoroughly. You cannot find in history where the Catholic Church killed millions of Christians. It simply doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. There's no record of In it. fact, if you examine all the writings that makes this accusation, they all use the Cathars. They all use the Albigensians, who are not really Christian at all. If you look into the Cathars, let's look up the word Cathars and Albigensians, and you'll see what I mean. In fact, I tracked countless of these publications to only found out that the sources are not credible. I'll give you an example. Peter de Rosa, he's known as Neil Boyd. He was not a historian, by the way. He's an ex-priest. What we need is historians. You'll never find a historian that would say, oh, yes, the Rome, the Catholic Rome, you know, killed millions of Christians. You'll never find that historian. All these are theologians writing this stuff. You have John Wesley. He's not a historian. He's a theologian. You have Alexander Hislop. He was a pastor of the East Free Church in Aberath in Scotland. You have Schmucker. He was not a historian. He was a professor of theology. You've got William Craig Brownlee. He was not a historian. He was a reverend, an Anglican clergyman. Uh, you have Joseph Martin McCabe. He was an ex-Catholic priest. You've got Charles Buck. He was an author of a theological dictionary. You've got Vergius. He was a religious reformer. You got Thomas Armitage, he was a Protestant theologian. George Bourne, a pastor. <laughs> I mean, I, the list goes on and on. Nathaniel Crouch, he was not a historian, but a writer. So the question comes to this. Name me a historian that would support anyone's claim that Rome killed millions of Christians. You won't find it. It doesn't exist. Even the Inquisition itself. Finally, the Inquisition was examined thoroughly when the Vatican opened its libraries and they found out that the Inquisition killed 3,000 people within a span of 100 years. Now, let's take Islam. Theodore is a better expert than myself on Islam. And Theodore, maybe you want to chime in. Tell us how many years did Islam kill 3,000 people in one day. It's yeah, called yeah. September 11. Well, for example, the Spanish Inquisition is accused of all sorts of atrocities. They say, well, the Spanish Inquisition, I've heard people say, it killed 3 million people, killed 1 million, 800,000 people, whatever. It's all, it's all just not true. When you put it, when you put such claims against the historical records, when you look at some of the top historians on the Inquisition, uh, for example, like Ricardo de Mendoza, you have um, Edward Peters, you had Thomas Madden, uh, you have all, several other historians that you can go to. What you find out is that the Inquisition lasted for about 350 years, and in that 350-year period, it killed around 3,000 people. And so, when you look at it, it probably killed like 11 people a year. And I think the state of Texas probably kills more people than that. <laughs> and so um, the Muslims, when Tarat ibn Ziyad invaded Spain, in one massacre alone, he butchered around 3,000 Jews. So what it took the Spaniards 350 years to do, they did in one massacre. But let's talk about other massacres that other people have committed. Yeah, well, let's look at Planned Parenthood. Abortion. The numbers are staggering. Yes, absolutely. I was in Spain one time, and me and this woman were arguing about the Inquisition. And she said, well, we're better off now. And I said, wait a second. Spain is one of, has one of the highest abortion rates in the world. Hundreds of thousands of babies are butchered every year in Spain. Are you telling me we're better off? And she had to rethink what she said. 
Yeah, but we're talking about the blood of the saints. Look at Turkey, Armenian yeah. genocide, over a million in how long? In no time whatsoever. The Muslims killed millions, countless of millions of Christians. Because remember, the text says it had the blood of the saints. You know, you take a look at the Protestant Catholic, you know, wars and this kind of thing. You find that it's pretty equal in these battles between the Puritans in England versus the Catholics. You know, you don't find this kind of thing where you have millions upon millions of martyred Christians. Nothing like what we have in Islam. We have in Islam thousands of wars, battles that happen between Christians and Muslims. We don't have that when we compare Catholic versus Protestant. So the history is pretty clear. Islam really tops them all in drinking the blood of the saints, even today. Well, and yeah. Islam really tops the, the heap when it comes to bloody paganism. It really originated there. People want to attribute that to the Catholic Church as well. But all these sun gods, moon gods, goddesses, mythology, Venus, morning star, you name it, it's all just pagan Sumerian deities, a lot of them, you know, the, the feminine root of all is said to be Ishtar. So how does that get from the Catholic Church into Mesopotamia and these, you know, in the Middle East? That makes no sense, does it? It doesn't make sense at all, because remember, the Bible says they worship the image of the beast. In the Bible, it says, do not worship Artemis, uh, Acts chapter 19, I believe. And her image that fell from Zeus. Well, we all know that the image of Artemis was a meteor. Well, the Muslims have a worship of a meteor called the Black Stone in, in Kaaba. And even John, when he's taken to the city, it's the middle of a desert. He says, the angel took me to a desert. He didn't take him to Rome. He took him to a desert. Then he showed me a city in the middle of a desert. And then he talks about how it looks. It's decked with gold and silver. Well, take a look at the at the Kaaba. The Kaaba has what is called the gate to Allah. Babullah. Take Babel and Babullah, same word. The gate to Allah. And it's made of pure gold. And that's where the Muslims basically talk to Allah, reach out to Allah, reach out to God in a way. And so you have a tower with seven buildings. Well, ancient Babel was reminiscent of seven towers on top of each other. In Mecca, we have seven towers and it's built literally on what they call Mount Babel. And I have articles. All what somebody has to do is put Babel Shubat, my name, S-H-O-E-B-A-T, and they can see the pictures. They, they developed this already in, in Saudi Arabia, and it's looking towards the moon. You know, you, you look at the gold and silver. You, you take a look. It's, it's decked with gold and silver. It's decked with names of blasphemy. Uh, names of blasphemy. A name in the Bible is a title. You know, description of blasphemy, the blasphemous creeds all around around it. And so you take a look at this blasphemous creeds on the Kaaba itself. It's literally written with threads of purest of gold and the purest of silver. When they thread the writings around the Kaaba, they call the belt on top and the forehead of the Kaaba, right on her forehead, as the Bible says. Look up the word Kiswa, K-I-S-W-A. This is the attire that is dressed with the Kaaba. She's dressed with gold and silver, you know, literally threaded with this gold and silver, very, very fine uh, silk that is covering this woman because it's treated as a woman. If you look at the Kaaba, she's dressed with a burqa, with a hijab, just as a woman. And then she has a vulva, you know, let's not get explicit here, but she has a vulva, just as it was in pre-Arabia. And it was the goddess of fertility. 
and they kissed the black stone from this vulva-shaped silver crevice covered from head to toe with only the vulva showing. And so God is kind of humorous when he writes about certain things and he describes it from his own perspective as a whore. And so we take a look at this scenario, we see Islam, we see the Kaaba, we see Arabia in the Bible, all the literal references in the Bible of names of nations are all written in plain English, Arabia. You have Pergamum, Turkey, you got, uh, you know, Lydia, which is Turkey, Ionia, which is Turkey, we got Syria, we got, you know, uh, all the different nationalities, Libya mentioned in the Bible. Is there any reference in the Bible of Rome or Spain? In fact, it's the opposite. The ships of Khatim goes against the Antichrist. Khatim is the coastlands of the Mediterranean in the West. So here we have reference in the Bible where the Western nations goes against the Antichrist. Well, that basically removes, you know, Europe from being the Antichrist. The Bible has the threat comes from the north. There's a threat coming from the east. There's one from the south. But there's nothing from the west. Yet they chose the west as the major threat. And they eliminated the north, the south, and the east, which really is referred in several areas in Scripture. Well, and then it also mentions the seven hills. So geographically, that ties into this as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. There are many cities that have seven hills. San Francisco has seven hills. The seven hills that the woman sits, well, Saudi Arabia sits on seven hills too. Mecca sits on seven hills, literally. And it's not mountains, it's hills. So you go to, uh, to Italy, Vatican is but one hill. It doesn't sit on seven hills. But Mecca does sit on seven hills, literally. And, and the Kaaba itself, or the building itself of the seven towers, just look up the seven towers, it's the largest building structure in the world. If you ask where is the largest building structure in the world, people don't know. Because they think of Dubai, the highest tower in the world. Saudi Arabia is also building a higher tower than that. But the largest building structure in the world is the seven towers sitting on Mount Babel overlooking Mecca. This is phenomenal. Well, you know? when, you, when you throw in the Red Sea, though, there's only one real geographic location for that Babylon then. Yes, absolutely. Because the shipmasters from afar off weep and wail as they see her destruction and the smoke of her burning. Alas, alas, that great city. You know, great city in what way? We always think economic. No, it's spiritual. The Bible is not interested in economics. Show me anywhere in the Bible that it mentions economics. They shall not buy and sell. Just take this, these two words, buy and sell, and they make this whole books over economics. Yeah. Buy and sell. No one can buy and sell unless they have the mark. In other words, you are not allowed to trade, to function in society, unless you put a mark of the beast on your forehead, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So we've got many flavors here. You know, what is in a name? Again, we have to understand why name is crucial, because name is really, you look at Christ, he's got names. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, his name is not wonderful, literally. His literal name is Yeshua or Jesus. And so when we look at his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. Well, God with us is not his literal name, you know. So what does name mean then? Name from a biblical perspective means a creed. Our creed is God is with us. So on her forehead written, blasphemous creeds. They will have a blasphemous creed on their foreheads. Well, that's exactly what Muslims do. They're, in fact, Islam itself teaches that in the end times, Muslims will be marked on their foreheads. In the Quran itself, it says, 
that a Muslim will have a mark. In fact, the Bible says that the Christians will have a mark of God on their forehead. So the problem isn't being marked. The problem is what are you being marked with? Why do we insist that the mark is bad? It depends on what the mark is because they will have the mark of God on their forehead. Is that a literal mark? I believe so because Moses, they had a mark. It was on the door. It emulated a cross because if you put blood on the doors and the lintels, you draw a cross. And the same is in Ezekiel. They had the mark of God, which is the Tau. The Tau in the ancient Hebrew alphabet at the time of Ezekiel resembled the T, the cross. Right. And so there's hints in the Bible itself that the believers must have the mark of God on their forehead. So at some point in time, we're going to recognize that we mark ourselves on our forehead with the symbol of the cross. Do you have a problem with marking your forehead with the symbol of the cross? If somebody has a problem with that one, I really feel sorry for them. Because if he didn't put the physical mark on the doorpost at the time of Moses, guess what? The firstborn perishes. And so it is a curse if we don't obey God in this case. We predetermine how God is going to reveal things to us. Right. And that was the problem in Jesus' first coming. They thought Christ is going to come riding on a white horse. He's going to defeat the Romans. And guess what? The picture was different. And so we have to allow God to reveal himself. And as we see the miraculous come, we need to understand, not to basically say, oh, that's demonic because this uh, vision in heaven doesn't match what we see or this doesn't match what we perceive. We have to be careful because Christ, his miracles, they accused him of being part of Beelzebub, the devil. And so we see a lot of things that would be that way. Say, oh, yeah, I know, that's the devil. The devil made this miracle. So we have to see how God works out. What does you know, John mean by, I saw a woman in the heavens, and then he talks about the Revelation 12. But before Revelation 12, it's Revelation 11. There's this woman appears in the heavens. So we got to really wait on God and see. And every miracle that we see, we have to wait with the Bible, number one. And number two, we have to look at the fruits of such miracles. You know, is it really glorifying God or is it not glorifying God? Because there's many signs and wonders that will come in the end and will sweep many to destruction. So we have to make sure that we allow the wisdom of the body of the church to recognize what is truth from falsehood. Fascinating. Well, I know that the Antichrist will change the laws and the times. The Mahdi could do just that, instituting Sharia law, imposing the Islamic calendar, the Bible says the Antichrist will behead those who resist him. The Mahdi and the false prophet could very well unite the whole Islamic world, reviving the Ottoman Emperor, conquer Israel, perhaps establish the headquarters of the Caliphate in Jerusalem. The bottom line is that Islam seems to be the perfect incarnation of the Antichrist spirit, just pure devilish. Well, nonetheless, fascinating discussion. And really, the fate of mankind is eternal damnation, unless people have the redemptive salvation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only answer to all of this. Well, on a final note, Theo, give out your website for the new listeners and tell people how they can support this ministry, because I think it's really important, the work that you guys do, especially in the persecution of Christians. I mean, we see that worldwide. Please do tell people how they can not only support your ministry, but also how they can follow your blogs, etc. It's very simple. They go to shubat.com, 
S-H-O-E-B-A-T.com. It's shoeandbatputtogether.com. So shoebot.com is the best website to go to. We're updating that website every single day with new stories and commentary that you're not really going to hear anywhere else. Uh, also, we have a rescue team. We have an organization that is rescuing Christians in Pakistan. We're also doing work in Iraq now. We're also doing work with Mexico with the victims of the drug cartel. So, um, and we have rescued many, many people, many, many lives in Pakistan. Uh, slavery still does exist, and there are literally thousands of Christians who are stuck as slaves in Pakistan. They're, they're making bricks for the brick kilns. Mm. Hundred thousand, hundred thousand, and we rescued about three thousand. There's still a lot more work to do. Wow. Well, I really encourage my listeners to get behind this, this work and this ministry because you know in the West here we really don't have any idea what true persecution looks like, but it's coming, and soon that's going to be on our front doorstep. And I think it's really time for people to step up and and support ministries that are boots on the ground. So Walid and Theo, I really want to thank you for your ministry and all the work that you gentlemen do. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on this show tonight. And do come back and see us soon. All right. Most definitely. Anytime. God bless you. God bless you too. Folks, that was Walid and Theodore Shobat from Shobat.com. You can find their information at weekendvigilante.com on today's bio. And Waleed Shobat will be actually speaking this weekend at the Southwest Radio Ministries East Coast Prophecy Conference. I know that's October 29th through the 31st. Paul McGuire is going to be speaking at that. And I know there's information on Paul McGuire's website about that, paulmcguire.us. So if you are in and around Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, do get out to that this weekend. They've got a great lineup of speakers, including Walid Shobat. Speaking of events, get out to Florida, November 13th, 14th and 15th for for the Augusto Perez Appearance Ministries event. It's going to be amazing. And I myself, I'm going to be there. So I'm looking forward to meeting you. I want to say hello to all the new listeners that have tuned in in the last few weeks especially those in Australia. Big shout out to all the new listeners in Europe as well. It is fantastic to have you tuning in. I thank you for making this a part of your daily routine. And if you've not signed up for the podcast, do so by going to weekendvigilante.com and do go up to the top pink bar on the right and add me on social media, especially Facebook and Twitter and especially sign up for my YouTube channel because some shows come on there before the podcasts even get released. So do sign up for my YouTube channel for sure. And finally, if you do not have a copy of Green Gospel, the New World Religion, get it. My book, Green Gospel, by going to greengospel.ca. Hey, and if you even like the ebook, you can have it instantly. So the greatest deception of our era. And I love what Dr. Timothy Ball, the renowned climatologist, says Sheila Zielinski's book effectively demolishes what you think you know. There you have it from one of the men instrumental in exposing climate gates. So such important information. So please do go to greengospel.ca. Tomorrow on the program, I'm very excited to have Pastor Mike Hoggard. We're going to be talking about pagan holidays. And there's something I bet you don't know. Very interesting. And nobody better to break it down than 
Pastor Mike Hoggard. He's such a great guest. And then Friday, the one and only Chris Putnam. That's going to be a fantastic show. So you want to be tuned into that. Thank you again for tuning into the broadcast today. See you tomorrow. Good night and God bless.